Would you turn with me this morning in the Word of God to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And our portion for reading will be again at verse 17 and we'll work through verse 20. Would you stand now out of respect for the holy, infallible, and inspired word of the living God? But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while, in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exultation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus that is coming? For you are our glory and joy. You may be seated. We've said this time and again so far in our series on this great book of 1 Thessalonians, but it bears repeating as often as is necessary because it's useful for us to understand what's going on in this book as Paul's thought unfolds. And that thing that we've said so many times before, and that I repeat this morning, is this book has a unique structure. This book has a unique structure. And that unique structure, which we've called attention to time and again, is the fact that it has a threefold Thanksgiving structure. A threefold Thanksgiving structure, which means that in the first three out of the five chapters of this book, Paul pauses to give thanks. Or you could put it another way. We could say this this morning, that in over half of this letter, the Apostle Paul returns to thanksgiving over the Thessalonians. And that's unique. No other book has this kind of structure. And we said that the reason for this structure is uh, at least in part due to the circumstances which generated this book and the circumstances which surrounded Paul's ministry there. But you see, one of the things we stress is you have thanksgiving and digression, thanksgiving and digression, and thanksgiving. And so if we're to reach back into chapter 1, we have thanksgiving for their works of labor and their, their steadfast hope and a number of qualities which characterize them. And then we have digression. We have the Apostle Paul speaking about his entrance and his ministry among them, how he served them, how he preached to them. And then as we just came upon it in this chapter, in verse 13, we paused yet again for thanksgiving, as we noticed that the Paul, Paul gives thanks over them for how they received the word. It wasn't as a word of men in their reception. They received it for what it really was, the word of God. And then we followed that up with another sermon on uh, really Thanksgiving sort of related theme is Paul's um, uh, example of how this word was at work in them that they received. And so in verse 14 and following, we took a moment to see how this powerful word which they had received as the word of God had been with them in times of tremendous distress. So that was Thanksgiving related. 
But as you come into our text, and I, I think it's important that we see this broader picture unfold before us, because as we come into our text this morning, we'll want to situate what Paul says here in view of this developing structure. And once again, I think we can say we're at digression. But this is a significant digression because here, perhaps more than anywhere else so far, we've begun to get a window into the Apostles' heart. Here we begin to receive a window into his deepest affections for this congregation and how he authenticates it. And of course, the reason for all of this, as we've mentioned before, that after Paul's ministry and after his abrupt and violent departure from town, which was forced by his opponents, those very same opponents came behind that ministry and determined to undermine it. And here's the thing that they kept saying. This is what they beat like a drum. This is the nail they hammered. If he loves you so much, why hasn't he come back? If he cares about you so much, why has he abandoned you? If you are held in such high regard and affection, how come he hasn't returned to look you eye to eye and minister to you heart to heart, face to face? Now you can imagine people who are new to Christ, who are new to the church, who are new to the living God, when they hear these kinds of criticisms, were stung by them. How couldn't they be moved by this? They're in a brand new faith. They, they've, they've sold everything as it were, and, and they have left everything behind as it were in order to become Christians. They've left their pagan path. They've left their family and their friends and associates. And they've come to Christ and they have counted on Christ for everything. And yet the very person who ministered this message to them has left them as orphans. That's the charge against Paul. And so it's taken a chapter and a half or a little bit more, but, but Paul's here now. Paul's ready to address the point now. And, and the thing that emerges from the pages of our text here this morning is the Apostle Paul, yes, concedes he's separated. But here's what he says. He's solicitous. He's solicitous. He, he has an earnest longing for them. He has a desire for them. He has a concern for them. He loves them in Jesus Christ. And he regards them with nothing but the highest affection as brethren in the Lord. That's the message he angles to get across here, not only in our text, but we're going to see it unfold even further when we look next time into chapter 3 in its early portions here. But, but he's laboring to get a point across that he has a profound longing for this congregation. And he says you can measure his affection for them in Christ by the aims he has for them in his ministry. 
And that's our point here this morning. I think it's the point of instruction for the church today from this text is, is not just to think about the historical relationship of Paul to this church and his concern from this church, but what we have here is a model which emerges from this text. And what the apostle is teaching about the ministry, as you can tell, when a pastor has affection, appropriate affection for the congregation, it's expressed in his spiritual aim and the way he ministers the word to them with a great aim, as the apostle says, which was his aim here, our hope and joy and crown is you in the presence of Christ on the last day. So we have his expression of pastoral concern And we see his aim for the ministry. Those are the two parts of that main idea that we want to unfold this morning. Pastoral affection is expressed in its spiritual aim. But let's think here this morning about this pastoral affection. And uh, I want to think about it from both sides of this relationship that is formed. We have the pastoral side and we have the congregational side. And we see the, the pastoral side here emerge in the first few words, really, of verse 17, by we. Now, what's interesting about that is um, the apostle doesn't need to put that we there. To be kind of nerdy, that we actually is a part of the statement that you're going to read at the end of verse 17. We were all the more eager. It's already in the first person plural. It's already saying something about him and the people associated with him in ministry. But to plant that we way up here in the front part of verse 17 is to really do something significant. It's to say, I want you to understand something. I'm talking about us right now. I'm talking about the ministry right now. I'm talking about myself and my co-laborers, Sylvanus and Timothy. As again, we're going to talk about the pastoral side of the relationship and then the congregational side. But here the Apostle, because he wants to get into this idea, already accents at the outset here that he wants them to think about this is who is the subject right now, the pastors who are part of this ministry team. And then the other thing that I think is important here about the very structure of our, of our opening, but we, is, is he's saying, contrast us with something else. All of us grasp that idea. I'm sure when we hear, but we, it's already signaled fairly clearly in English that there's a a contrast being formed. And Paul invites them to consider a contrast between himself and and others. And we might ask, well, well, who are the others then? Who are the others? And I, I think if we just reach back into our context here, real near to hand, we'll see exactly who he's speaking about. And it's um, the unbelieving Jewish opponents that he talks about in verses 15 through 16. And last time we examined five bullet points about them. Uh, They killed Jesus and the prophets. They persecuted Paul and drove him away every time he brought the word. They were not pleasing to God. Uh, They were hostile to all men by hindering the progress of the gospel and the promotion of Christ in the earth. They were filling up the measure of their sins in view of Judgment Day. That's what Paul says about the unbelieving Jews who opposed him, who opposed the churches of Judea, and who are now opposing the saints in Thessalonica. 
You see, because the apostle is saying it doesn't matter that uh, these Jews were located in one place. They all shared similar ideas. If they didn't believe in the Christ, this is what they did. They turned hostile to Christ and to his church. And these are the people now who the Apostle Paul is having to counteract because these are the people who were running around undermining Paul's reputation behind his back. These were the people who were bringing false charges. These were the people who were ringing the alarm bells among the Thessalonican church. These were the people who were critical of Paul. And by doing that, we're saying or at least had the intention that if they could undermine Paul, they could undermine his message, and if they could undermine that, they could undermine their faith and draw them away from Christ. These are very, very different people than the apostle. The apostles' earnest desire is that they would be wedded unto Christ. And the aim of these unbelieving false Jewish teachers was that they would hate Christ. Paul speaks of himself and his colleagues in ministry, and then he speaks of the congregation. Look at this in verse 17. Brethren, having been taken away from you. And here we're going to settle in just for a moment because there's a couple of key terms that the apostle has used. And the first to describe the congregational side of this pastoral relationship now begins with the words, brethren. You think about that word brethren or or brothers, you you begin to realize uh, at a basic understanding, it it refers to the family. And you think about that this morning, what relationship is more sound and more sustained than a family relationship? You think about it, who do you turn to when you need encouragement but your family? Family. Who do you trust more than your family? Who do you seek to protect more than your family? That's what's in view here in our text as, as this language is being used. The Apostle Paul, when he wanted to speak about the, the deep connection between saints, he, he reached for a family term. And he says, this describes what we are now in Christ. We're a part of a giant family. We are a part of the family of God. And just to see how important this term is to the apostle, I just have you notice in your Bible and track with me that if your Bible is open, you look at uh, chapter 1, verse 4, you can see the word what? Brethren. If you drop down and you put your finger onto verse 1, you'll see what? Brethren. If your Bible is open, you look down now at verse 2. What will you find? Brethren. If you look on into verse 7 of chapter 3, what will you see? Brethren. I could repeat this. This word is used repeatedly in 1 Thessalonians. The text reads, brother, 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 all the way through the very end of chapter 5. Paul keeps using this term, brother. Why the repetition? I think once or twice would do, wouldn't it? How about you next time? Y'all, how about that? He didn't do that. He repeatedly calls them brother. 
And it seems to me quite obvious that one of the things he is doing with the repetition of the term is to seek to cement the notion of spiritual ties, of of deep bondedness and connection between the saints. He's trying to communicate the idea that the relationship which they sustain one with another and with him is unaffected by the separation. No matter whether he is with them in Thessalonica or ministering from afar in Corinth, that tie which is invisible can't be broken. The relationship which they share together in Christ is something that can't be broken. They're all in the family of God together. Now, that word enough, along with its rich context of repetition, which say all that we need to say probably at this point, but I want you to notice what follows after that word brethren. You should have but we, comma, brethren, comma, having been taken away from you. Well, this is one of those rare instances where we need to clean up the translation. Because that's not what Paul says. This is one word in the original, and this one word means having been orphaned. To be bereft, if you want to use that English term, which most of you probably wouldn't think of or reach for. It's the same word, if you will, that Jesus uses in that very memorable phrase in that highly dramatic moment on the night in which he was betrayed. As he speaks to his disciples in John 14, he says, I will not leave you, what? Orphaned. Now, when you hear the language of being orphaned, it's one of the most dramatic and emotionally intense words in, in our language. Because it points to tragedy. It points to a terrible separation. It speaks of a permanent separation of a, of a, of a child losing their parents. It's a powerful term. It evokes profound sense of emotion within us. But you know what the Apostle Paul does? He takes that word and he turns it inside out. And he says, I'm the one who's been orphaned. I'm the one who's lost my children. See, it's passive in form, and the suggestion here is that I'm the one who's been separated from my family and my children in faith. I think he probably uses that for a very specific reason, by the way. I think this word quite likely parrots and echoes the accusation made against him is that he has orphaned them. He has chopped them off from their parent and faith. This is a word that speaks into the family relationship, doesn't it? I got to thinking about that and I realized that underneath that term is a spiritual reality, isn't it? Underneath that term is a spiritual reality. It implies a spiritual basis for this relationship. And the spiritual basis of this relationship is regeneration. 
We remember this morning that no one is born into the family of God. Remember how the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, he said, we were all children of wrath. We're all born of sin. We're all born with an umbilical cord connected to depravity and fallenness. You're not just born into the family of God physically. You must be born again. That's what Jesus says to Nicodemus. Remember, in John chapter 3, we have this marvelous discussion of the notion of regeneration. And here comes Nicodemus, whom John says is the great teacher of Israel. And he sits down in the middle of the night with a lamp separating him and Christ. And he speaks to Jesus as if he's speaking one friend to the next. And Jesus says, stop. Nicodemus, if you'd see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. If you would be in the family of God, you must be born again. And he turns very directly to him again in verse 7. And he says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. This is underneath this this very powerful and durable term the Apostle is using. Because the only way he could be in this relationship where he could be described to them as a spiritual father to these spiritual children is if they'd been born again. And this, of course, is what we learn about from the Thessalonians, don't we? We love verse 5 of chapter, uh, uh, of chapter 1 as the Apostle Paul expounds upon his early ministry in them as he says, Our gospel didn't come to you in word only, which implies it did come in word. But he goes on to say, it came in power and it came in the Holy Spirit and it came in much assurance or conviction. You see, in all of these phrases, the Apostle is unpacking how they've come into this relationship with Christ. It was through the Gospel, through the powerful operation of the Holy Spirit, who brought that Word home to their hearts savingly, who regenerated them, who gave them faith, who united them to Christ. So the Apostle can see of them in verse 9, you turned to God. From idols. But you see, all of this colors in now, this theological context colors in the language the Apostle is using. It's very intentional terminology here because he's trying to describe the nature of their relationship together. In one way, he is aiming to assure them of the soundness of the relationship is that it's grounded in things you can't touch. It's grounded in invisible spiritual realities. That the distance and the separation, it's not a hindrance. They're in Christ. They're all together a family of God. They all share the same Heavenly Father. They're all brethren in Jesus Christ. And he brings that language and he, and he draws it out and he places it front and center before them to help them understand that this pastoral relationship which they have is founded on grace. They're all recipients together of Christ. 
That's a congregation. If we could just stop this morning and think about that. The Apostle Paul is, is explaining and describing a congregation. We're a family united together in Christ. We are a family united together in the fact that we all share the same bond. We're a family united together because we've had the same spiritual experience of regeneration and the work of the Holy Spirit. So wherever you have that, you have people who are related together on a profoundly significant foundation. And it's that foundation which is a foundation which makes for a congregation to be at peace. It's that foundation, that shared interest in Christ, that shared experience of grace, that shared experience of spiritual regeneration and the rebirth. It's that because of the quickening grace of the Holy Spirit which makes a congregation be at peace, which is the basis for how we treat each other, which is the basis for Christian unity which is the base for loving one another. It's been said, it's hard to be angry with people you pray with. That should be true. It's hard to be angry with people you pray with. Hard to sit in judgment of people you pray with. It's hard to sit around being a finger pointer and a critic with people you pray with who share what you share in Christ. It's hard to be a gossip towards people who you share Christ with. This is a very humbling thought here as he expounds on the nature of the relationship. It's not a topic which typically emerges in Paul's letters, but he's doing this to to ground them to give them some deep sense of confidence that there's a real sustainable foundation for this relationship, even though there's a separation. There's deep affection because of the spiritual realities which unite them. And now notice the expression of pastoral concern under this as he goes on to unpack what he is thinking. Let me just give you a sort of filter to hear this language through. It's provided by Dr. William Hendrickson. He says, Paul's very words seem to tremble. He says, these words which we're about to unpack here are so intensely emotional, he says, that Paul's words seem to tremble. And whether I can do an adequate job expounding that notion out, that's the right sense in which we're to hear what the Apostle says now as he unfolds his deep concern for them. And we come into the latter part of verse 18 where he says, we were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. Each of those words sort of piled on top of one another, tells us something very significant about his concern. It's all under the circumstance of the apostle having been separated. All of it is. He says uh, he'd been taken away for a short while and he wasn't in person with them. But I want you to notice what he says here, not in heart. 
He says, I may not have been with you in person, but it wasn't separated, as our text says, in spirit, but literally it's in heart. It's the Apostle's way of saying that wherever he was, they were in his thoughts and considerations. And it's because of all that that he says, we were eager to see you. And each word here piled up on top of the other is powerful. This word eager means to put all of your effort and then more into something. All of your effort and more. And that would have done the job. It would have been plenty to say that the apostle had a great concern to see them. But then he adds more to that with that very powerful qualifier, all the more. As if spudazzo, intense effort, didn't say it. No, no, no. He says, all the more. And then he expresses the eager desire. He says, with great desire. Not just a little, but with great. To see you face to face. Every part of that is a a very gripping description of his concern. But how would they know that he really cared? How would he know that there was this way of relating to them and thinking about them which was so unshakable? After all, he hadn't showed up. He'd preached and he'd left and he hadn't, he hadn't returned. And that's going to lead us now into a discussion of the application of this deep concern and how it can be measured, which is in the aim for ministry. The pastoral concern and affection can be measured by the aim for ministry. And it's going to take us a couple of verses to get there. And we're going to have a little side stop on the way. But it's all relevant to the broader discussion here as the Apostle now moves from saying that he had this affection to showing it in action or in practice by the aim that he had for the ministry. We begin to see that connection of ideas now in verse 18 in the very first word, for. You see, that word for is connecting back to Paul saying, we were eager, and now for explains it. It says, I've told you I was eager. Now let's see if we can measure it. Now let's see if we can find some tangible expression of this great eagerness. And so now walk forward with me. We wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once. So here is the Apostle's way of confirming now. He had this tremendous desire, this great eagerness to be with them. And he says, I want to come to you. I want it to be face to face. And then he inserts here language that is really not needed at all unless you're really seeking to to be emphatic about a point. He says, I, Paul. See that? He's already said we wanted to be there. But now you have a hyphen in your verse. I, Paul, this is my own wish. This is my own determination. And then he adds to it a doubling down kind of talk here when he says more than once. Literally, the text says once and twice. You could translate that uh, time and again, more and more. Or repeatedly, all of that would work. It would say everything that the Apostle Paul is trying to say here. There was a deep longing and desire to come see them. But now notice, and this is our side spot on the road that we want to stop by for a moment, because it's very much related to the circumstance which prohibited his ministry there. 
He says, and yet Satan hindered us. Yet Satan hindered us. This is very interesting now as the Apostle Paul begins to get into his reasons for never having returned. And he says, it's not the Lord that hindered me, it's Satan that hindered me. And in saying it that way, that shows quite a measure of discernment. You'll remember with me probably from Acts 16. Oh, it was a while ago, I know, in our sermons through the book of Acts, but you remember that when the Apostle Paul was in southern Galatia, ready to launch out on his second missionary journey, we're told that he wanted to go into Asia. He wanted to go east. And as he attempted to go east, he was forced to go north. Remember why? The reason the Apostle Paul, or rather Luke, gives us for why the Apostle couldn't go east but was forced to go north is because the Holy Spirit forbid it. Now I know that the Apostle Paul fully believes that God is sovereign over all of life. He's not denying that or seeking to mitigate that or suggest somehow that there's some sort of cosmic duel when sometimes Satan gets his way instead of what God wants. He's trying to bring us into the ways in which the Word of God is thwarted and opposed, and so he says, yet Satan hindered us. Now that's a very powerful term. It's a military term. It would have been used of the enemy coming along and uh, tearing up the roads and trails so that they were impassable for the troops to move across it. So this is what he's saying here, that his pathway to Thessalonica had been destroyed and reduced to ruin by satanic opposition. His heart was for them and to minister among them, but he couldn't do it. Start thinking about that. You remember those words of the Apostle Paul, and they're given sort of vivid illustration here, aren't they? These words of, of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6.12 are given vivid illustration by what he says Satan hindered, because there the Apostle Paul says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. He says, this is the struggle of the church. This is the struggle of the believer. This is the struggle of the kingdom of God. We're wrestling against spiritual darkness and forces which are imperceptible but real. I want you to know this morning, people of God, that word struggle means wrestle. It was a term that was used to describe the wrestling matches in the Greco-Roman games. It speaks of two opponents locking up in the head and arm position, seeking to use all of their skill, all of their leverage, all of their strength, all of their speed to take the other person down and to pin them on the back in the show of physical intimidation. But think about that. The Apostle Paul, when he wants to talk about the way in which Satan seeks to hinder the kingdom of God and the hearing of the gospel and the fruit of preaching, is to say it's like a fight in a phone booth. Maybe you don't know what those are. But they're about large enough for one person to comfortably stand in and close the door behind you so you could talk on the phone without somebody else hearing you. 
And he's saying this is the nature of satanic opposition to the Word of God. It isn't out there somewhere or far off right there. It's right up inside of you. It is face to face. It is hand to hand. We have lots of descriptions of that in the Word of God. Paul says that the God of this age seeks to blind people's eyes to the truth so they cannot see and be saved. Peter uses the metaphor of a lion dragging its leash behind it, having broke free, seeking who may devour. Jesus has another way of describing it that brings it closer to the hearing of the Word and the situation of the ministry of the Word and preaching. He talks about the Word when it's sown. He says one of the things that happens when the Word is sown is that as the birds of the sky swoop down to snatch at a seed, that's what he says Satan does when the Word is preached. close quarter, hands-on, face-to-face, contact-to-contact, opposition to the Word. The Apostle here speaks of the Word of God being hindered and ministry being hindered because of satanic opposition. One of the things that we're supposed to hear in this this morning is this is the ongoing battle of the church. It's a battle in our church today, right here this morning. When the word is preached, when the gospel goes forth, there's always this struggle. There's hindrance. And we can say this is about what happens to believers because Paul is saying this about his attempt to minister to whom? Believers. So that might lead us this morning to think in a general way what stands in the way of the ministry of the Word. What kind of hindrance can Satan use against the hearing of the Word? As I got to thinking about that, I found a very clear and obvious connection to the hindrance of the preaching of the Word, and that's our emotions. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, don't let... The sun go down on your anger and give the devil an opportunity. The language of the text says Satan is crouching at the door. It's saying there that in the believer, when their heart becomes inflamed with sinful emotion, Satan is there to distort it. James says the same thing in James chapter 1 when he's giving admonitions, exhortation, and instruction about to hear the Word of God in a way that is for profit. The very first thing he says is, Brethren, you be slow to anger. And then he goes on to unfold a list of sins that need to be put away. And the point of it all is in the clincher, as he says, in order that you may receive the Word in humility. 
You see, one way in which the Word is hindered, one way in which the Word is prevented by satanic opposition from sanctifying and building you up and causing you to grow in maturity is your own attitudes. And He'll take those attitudes, those sinful attitudes, and amplify them. And the Word's effect is canceled. It's choked. It's no wonder the larger catechism, when it speaks about the way to properly hear the Word, spends plenty of time not on your mind, but on your heart. You see, if you come here with cynicism, if you come here with anger, if you come here with a critical spirit, if you come here with pride, it doesn't matter how much you walk away intellectually being able to say you understood. If you're not receiving the Word in humility, if you're not receiving the Word with faith, if you're not receiving the Word with love, It doesn't matter how much you walk away with this morning and you can say, I understand it intellectually. The Word of God says you're not profiting because the only way to profit from the Word is to receive it in humility. Lots and lots of servings of roast preacher will never help you become a better hearer of the Word. Think about that. The way to become a better hearer of the Word is to receive it with humility, casting aside sinful attitudes. Otherwise, it'll be, as Paul says, hindered. So Paul has this tremendous and powerful expression of pastoral love. And then he talks about the application of it was to go minister, and it was hindered. But now we come into what would be the sweet spot, if you will, of his ministry aim. And this is really the expression of his heart. And once again, I, <clears throat> I point to this word for, because it connects us back to the first part of verse 18, we wanted, and explains what that was, our hope. And he says three things here. This is the great hope of the ministry. Our joy, our hope, our crown of exaltation. You see, he wanted to come minister. Why? Because of them. I wonder if you have who. Does anybody have who in their Bible? That's what he says. It's personal. Personal. Who? Who is our joy? Who is our hope? Who is our crown? You see what it is there? You. Persons. The church. See what the great concern and aim of the ministry is now? He goes on to say, You, in the presence of our Lord Jesus at His coming. Paul reaches to the very end of history, the last day. And he says, I 
minister with my eyes unto horizons. One, the people before me, and two, where they stand when it matters. The people who are before me, and where do they stand when it matters? This word coming is a technical term for the coming of Christ at the end of the age in glory. This envisions the day of judgment when Christ returns and the thing that Paul says motivates him in ministry above everything when it comes to the people of God is them standing before Jesus Christ and in His presence. What is His hope? His hope is that the work that has begun will continue into the day of Jesus Christ. What is His joy? His joy is seeing them continue in the faith and to walk in the truth, as John says. His crown is that by being a part of the ministry which Christ has appointed in His church, that there will be these saints gathered before Jesus Christ, clothed in His perfect righteousness and His shed blood, who are, instead of receiving judgment, entering into the joy of the Lord. This is Paul's way of saying you can measure Thessalonians. You can measure pastoral affection for the congregation. The aim of the ministry, the aim of the teaching, the aim of the catechizing, the aim of the praying, the aim of the private and personal ministry of the word, the aim of the council, the aim of the government, the aim of the decisions, the aim of all of it is very simple and very pointed and very focused. How you stand before Christ. That's the goal of the church. As the Apostle Paul explains the historical facts surrounding his separation, his longing for them, I told you at the outset of our message that this isn't about a mere history lesson. This is instruction for the church about what a pastoral relationship looks like and how we can measure whether it's true. It's based upon the aim of the ministry and the intention of what's being done. It's this. Not buildings, not external signs of success, not popularity, but people, believers, you, standing in the presence of Christ. There's no other aim that the church has. Yeah, glorifying God, but this is what we do in terms of the aim of the ministry. This is what it looks like. A desire to see the people of God in Christ. That's the kind of ministry that we need. I'll guarantee you, people of God, this morning that it's done here imperfectly. There's much room that your pastor has to do to grow in. But this is the aim. This is the aim. The word ministered. Then may you stand in the presence of Christ with joy. As we think about that great aim of the ministry this morning, people of God, I, I just want to take a moment to remind us as we walk away from our text what prepares us for that. 
I want us to walk away from our text being reminded yet again what prepares us for that great endpoint of ministry, that great outworking of it all, that standing before Christ in His presence. It's the ministry of the Word. It's the ministry of the Word. We started this church years ago uh, with a desire to, to make one thing central here. And that was Scripture. So we sung the Scripture. We read the Scripture. We preached the Scripture. We catechized with Scripture. And we said it wasn't going to be much else besides that. We said it tried to invoke the old idea of the Protestant meeting house. Four walls and a sermon. And the reason is because of the aim of ministry. It's this. How you stand in the presence of Christ on the last day. And that day is coming. And so that means today is the day to begin making that preparation. Since each day is connected inseparably to the next, that ends at the end point, which is that great day. It means that today really matters. And so as the word is proclaimed and read and spoken of here, it's, it's a day today to exercise faith. It's a day today to confess sin and forsake it. It's a day today to ask God through the Spirit to take the Word of God and make it sanctifying to the heart. Today, this day is the day that having heard of Christ and of a merciful Savior and of one who uh, brings people to life through the Word to run to Him, to exercise faith in Him, to trust in Him. And as we do that day by day and Lord's Day by Lord's Day, what it does as we lay hold of the means God has appointed to safeguard us unto that day, as we do that, we can be sure that we'll have the experience that the Apostle Paul speaks of, which formed the whole aim of his ministry, that we would have joy as we stand in the presence of Christ, clothed in His blood on that day. Father, we thank You this morning for this great aim of ministry here, and it's a powerful one. As we think about how Your Apostle teaches the church of the bonds that unite us and connect us together, as Your Apostle thinks about and uh, speaks of and instructs us in, the great aim and purpose of ministry, which is preparation for the last day. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to be those faithful hearers of the word who understand that our role in this is to be those who receive the word with humility so that your word would be a sanctifying and upbuilding word and an edifying and a sanctifying word unto our blessing. So God, give us all this morning ears that are ready to hear. Help us to be quick to cast away every sin that besets a faithful hearing so that as we walk away, we will have not only seen Jesus, but we would be built up in His grace. This we ask in His name. Amen.